The um, full moon of May in the Theravada tradition of Buddhism, which is what we uh, here at IMS are in the tradition of. The Theravada teaching of the elders is the schools of Buddhism from Southeast Asia, Burma, Thailand, Sri Lanka, Cambodia, Laos. And the full moon of May is the Waisak festival. It's really the most significant day in the Theravada Buddhist calendar because it's said that the, the Buddha was born on the full moon of May, came to his full enlightenment on the full moon of May, and also died on the full moon of May in our tradition. So in Thailand, for example, where I spent about a year, it's really quite a big occasion for celebrating the Buddha and the teachings that have come down to us. So I wanted to mention it since it's the full moon of May now. And also, to just to start the talk, it made me think of the last time that I was in Bodh Gaya, which is the small village in India where the Buddha is said to have, at the end of his six years of ascetic practices and wanderings and very intense practice, at the end of this time, it was under a Bodhi tree in this what is now the little village of Bodh Gaya in India, which is where he sat under this tree and had his full, complete opening experience into enlightenment, into freedom, which he then proceeded to spend the rest of his life sharing with us. So about, I guess it was 1989, I went back to Bodh Gaya with several dear friends. I had not been there for maybe 18 or 19 years. The first meditation retreat I ever did was in Bodh Gaya. But since at that time I knew nothing about meditation or Buddhism or anything else, I didn't really appreciate the uh, spiritual and symbolic significance of that village or that as a place to begin my acquaintance with Buddhism. So when we went back in 89, it turned into quite a metaphor for me of our life and a practice. It was really quite a powerful experience. Let's see if I can explain how. We, Bodh Gaya is a dusty little town in the state of Bihar, which is by far the poorest state in India, if you can imagine that. It's very dusty, the people are very poor, it's very dry. And Bagai is a little village in the middle of that. And when you, you go, there's, of course, a beautiful stupa next to a descendant of the original Bodhi tree that the Buddha is said to have sat under. And the stupa is located in what's a very pleasant park. Lots of green and trees and bushes. It's, it's really a very lovely spot, little pond, walls around it that are locked at night. And as you walk up to this, to this sacred space, which is quite a pilgrimage spot for Buddhists from all over the world, as you walk up, um, there's just the village life of India. 
you have to walk past a whole line, a huge lineup of beggars. They just sit one after the other after the other. And just before you get to them, there's a couple of, of little guys sitting selling coins that you can buy to give to the beggars. Like, for instance, for a, hun- for a rupee, which is worth 100 paisa, you can buy nine 10 paisa pieces to give. So that guy makes 10 paisa. And each beggar, you would give 10 paisa, which is basically worthless. I mean, there's nothing you can really do with a 10 paisa. So there's that. There's people running up with little plastic bags filled with water and fish that they're trying to sell to you because these these fish are taken and liberated into the ponds inside the, the temple grounds by Tibetans, people who are really valuing the life and setting a life free as a way of earning merit and good karma. And then um, different people, Hindus, will go and catch the fish and put them in little bags and come out and sell them. <laughs> so it's just this kind of an atmosphere. You know, it's all of life. And we went in and uh, sitting actually by underneath the tree on the wall nearby, it was a very, very profound experience for me because somehow it brought to me the sense of the humanness and the reality, the fact that, oh, this isn't just some mythological story. The Buddha was a real man, a human being, and that potential for liberation that we always say is possible for all of us, I got it, it really is. It really is possible for all of us, and this is accessible here and now. And we were sitting on a just sitting quietly trying to meditate on a small wall near to the tree. And again, it turned into a metaphor for the whole mandala of our human existence. Because being inside the temple ground and near this the sense of reality of it, it's also not particularly removed and peaceful. There are tour buses coming up constantly bringing big tour groups of Thai people, Japanese people, Indian people, Westerners, coming through, talking in megaphones, talking really loud, staring at us, sitting there trying to meditate. There's there's a crazy lady who, who kind of roamed around screaming the whole time. There's a group of Tibetan monks sitting on the side for three days, doing a ceremony, which was quite lovely, but loud chanting and blowing of horns and banging of cymbals, dogs running around, just people. It's really, it's wild. It's wild. And still, within this whole show of humanity, it's kind of as if it's not in spite of that, it was because of it somehow, that seeing that this potential for awakening doesn't have to, this is the metaphor for me, it didn't have to be so removed that it can happen in the midst of the whole show and that we don't have to be some kind of incredibly special, unique being, that it is possible and accessible for all of us if we really open to that, if we can really commit our hearts to that. So just as there's so many ways to manifest in the world, 
There's also so many ways to manifest in the mandala of our practice. Sometimes our practice will be being in the world, being in the chai shop, having a tea. Sometimes we're the people on the tour bus, kind of going through checking it out, but not quite getting involved yet. And sometimes we're taking time to do really serious, intense practice, sort of in a more removed way. And all of it's part of our life and part of our growth. There's not one way that's better than another. It all kind of comes together in a circle. And so I think I've come to think of the way that we cultivate and develop in love and understanding to be the same way. And whereas uh, the Vipassana, the insight practice, the Buddha taught very much as coming to liberating understanding, coming to the end of suffering and confusion, the sure heart's release, the happiness of peace, by seeing deeply into the nature of suffering and the cause of suffering, which is his first two noble truths, the nature of suffering and the cause being attachment. And in Vipassana, we tend to inquire along that mode. In the metta, and what I'd like to talk about tonight is ways that, for me, the metta has really expanded on and broadened both my understanding of the nature of suffering and also of the nature of attachment. That is sort of another piece of the mandala of practice. And I've found that the intensive loving-kindness practice and the after-effects it's had in my life and understanding provides a very important kind of balancing effect to the understanding that comes about from Vipassana. So in learning, talking about what, I'm, what I've learned about working with aversion, noticing attachment, working with attachment from the view of metta practice, aversion first, what Michelle was talking about last night, the two, two of the five hindrances she spoke of, aversion, anger, fear, the other one being attachment, desire, grasping, And she mentioned that these two have very deep roots in our mind, much deeper, say, than sloth and torpor or restlessness. Aversion, fear, anger, hatred, all being reactions to the difficulty or pain or suffering that we experience or perceive or do our best not to experience or perceive in the course of our life in the course of a day, in the course of a sitting. Aversion, fear, or else overwhelm or denial. Just very briefly, metta offers us, as a balance to this, the potential not to shut off to the suffering, but to be able to expand and broaden our experience so that we're not blind to the suffering, but that we can also open to the potential 
for happiness, for joy, and for love. I found that metta has lent a real breadth, a real inclusive aspect of experience, and a real strength to be with the difficulty without drowning in it. And on the other side, with attachment, which as we've said several times, um, affection or love with attachment in it is the near enemy of metta because it's so close we can confuse it. Yet at the same time, I've found that by cultivating and becoming deeply familiar with the actual experience of the state of pure loving kindness and all the times that I get lost in the attachment, it's very much deepened my understanding of and recognition of attachment, the nature of the suffering that attachment can bring when not recognized through seeing and feeling more and more deeply what the nature of true love that doesn't want something back is. It really highlights the suffering aspect of attachment. So to begin first with speaking about the aversion, fear, difficulty. Whenever in sitting and walking in our daily life, aversion or fear arises, it's in response to a difficult or painful physical, emotional, mental experience that's actually happening here and now in this moment. Physical, that's obvious, you can tell. If you hurt, there's a response of fear or aversion to it. That's clear, it's here and now. But even mental, we might be thinking about something that happened in the past, fearing that it will repeat itself in the future. So that actual thing isn't happening, but the thought about it is happening in this moment. The freedom, the sure heart's release that our practice hopefully guides us to that it points to moment by moment comes from truly knowing things as they are without a lot of interpretation, without getting carried away into stories about and fear, comes from being able to meet directly with openness whatever is happening here and now in this moment. And that allows us to see it clearly. And obviously, this makes it necessary to be able to meet fully, to open in a balanced way to the painful aspects of life. Because quite a bit of our moment-to-moment experience is not going to be pleasant. That's just the way it is. And if we cannot open to the difficult when it arises, if we need to deny it, if we need to always move away, or if we get really lost in the fear and the aversion, then rather than being able to open to truth, we end up spending our time lost in struggle, trying to control, to manipulate, to change. Yet, and this is something that can often happen in our practice, 
as we do begin to truly open to the pain of the world, to the pain of our own experience, to injustice, the opening can sometimes seem so vast and the confusion and the pain can seem so overwhelming at times that we can just feel like we're drowning in it. That the sense of seeing things as they are can really start to be uh, unbalanced. We start to see and experience things, I call it like seeing it through a a dukkha lens. Dukkha is a word for unsatisfactoriness or suffering. And there's times in life and practice as we begin to really acknowledge the suffering in ourselves that arises or in the world, there's times that all one notices is the unsatisfactory or suffering aspect. I remember one time I was on a long retreat and I was really opening to this and I would walk in the room I was in, which it was a very nice room, sunny, I had a little plant in the window, I mean, it had made it very pleasant. And I would walk in and I'd see the plant and go, uh, it's just going to die. You know? And anything that would come into my experience, I'd see uh, two friends who had just gotten in a relationship walking down the driveway and I'd think, uh, in two months they're going to be suffering. And anything that would come into my experience would be seen through this lens of the potential of change. Yeah, that plant will die, but also in the meantime, it'll be very beautiful, it can bring a lot of joy, and it might be 10 years from now. And death is also just a natural part of things. You know, it's, it's unbalanced. Thich Nhat Hanh, who talks a lot about working with this balance, says that it's very important for us to stay in touch with the suffering of the world in order to keep compassion alive in us, in order to keep the connection with the world alive. But getting in touch with suffering is not enough. It can get really unbalanced. You know, it's not the whole picture. We can start to drown. And instead of staying in touch through the suffering, instead of staying in touch with compassion, our response can easily turn to that kind of negativity I was describing, or anger, or frustration. And this is where I found the broadening and strengthening aspect of loving kindness to be so helpful. That it helps, it helps me to hold the whole range of life without having to just focus on one way or the other. It seems like a real paradox to me that in opening to what is true, an opening to the beautiful, to love, to interconnection, we also open to great depths of sadness and suffering, and vice versa. And it seems that for all of us, this mystery can be quite hard to hold. It seems our minds have a tendency to want things either one way or the other. You know, if there's, if there's suffering, something difficult going on in the world, then we don't know how to notice what's beautiful, what's wonderful, what's connected. If we're feeling filled with love and happiness, we kind of don't want to hear anything about war and difficulty because it might bring us down. 
And, and so opening to the whole show is something that I have found metta to be extremely helpful with. An example, um, during the Gulf War a couple of years ago, when it first started, I was in India, and somehow it felt much closer to what was going on, and you also got a whole different slant on how the world felt about the Gulf War than you got from the newspapers and the media here. And in the middle of it, I came back to the States. So it was actually quite interesting to see. I mean, in India, people basically hated the Americans and hated the war. And it came back here, and it was so rah-rah. It was really interesting compared to the attitude there had been during the Vietnam War. But anyway, I was walking near my, my cottage down the road during the war, and just just feeling the pain of it and the sense of the helplessness and all that goes on when we're really feeling the suffering and, and feeling that there's not much we can do about it, but still feeling responsible in some way, part of it. And it's a very lovely driveway. And as I was walking, I suddenly just noticed, wow, this is so beautiful here. And I had a moment of deep appreciation of what a beautiful place I live, how peaceful and silent it was, followed immediately by a wave of guilt and self-hatred. And who are you to think that you have the right to enjoy such a beautiful, peaceful experience when people are fighting and dying and this whole struggle, you know, that somehow it wasn't okay to let in both perceptions. And just talking to people here in the course of the of the small group meetings we've had it's come up quite a few times in different ways of speaking about it but either a feeling of um, guilt at taking the time to send loving kindness to oneself a feeling that this must be selfish to just sit here and cultivate loving kindness when there's so much suffering, when there's so much grief in the world, or even a sense of mistrust, of, of not being able to trust that this is true happiness or that somehow we're deluding ourselves. You know, there's, there's got to be some kind of catch. And when we really see the whole picture, this is all going to evaporate because it can't be true. And it's very, it's very sad to me in many ways to see how hard it is for us to be able or willing or to trust that there can be happiness and love and that we can also acknowledge quite deeply our connectedness with all beings who might be suffering, who might be confused. We have to try and separate the two when actually opening to the metta, allowing the sense of really pure love for ourselves, for other beings, to be nurtured, to flower, to really grow to a depth, actually brings us much more vividly, much more viscerally in a real living experience into knowing our connection with all beings. But it's so hard for us to trust it. And you might not feel that 
profoundly on the retreat, but I've noticed very much in my life outside of the intensity of retreat that in subtle ways that's where the loving kindness begins to bear fruit, where you might find it beginning to flower to broaden and balance our experience. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh. If we see deeply into the nature of interbeing, that all things inter-are, as he says, we will stop blaming, arguing, and killing. To practice nonviolence, we must first of all learn ways to deal peacefully with ourselves. If we can create true harmony within ourselves, we will know how to deal with family, friends, and associates. Most important is to become nonviolence, so that when a situation presents itself, we will not create more suffering. To practice nonviolence, we need gentleness, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity directed to our bodies, to our feelings, and then to other people. With mindfulness, the practice of peace, we can begin by working to transform the wars in ourselves. And I think this is very profound. It's not just nice words. That by directing gentleness, loving kindness to our bodies, to our feelings, and to other beings, we are transforming the wars in ourselves. And this is the most vital place that we can then begin to open to the wars in the world and do whatever little we can to transform them. Can't separate them. Thich Nhat Hanh offers some conscious techniques, one that's a little different from metta, for working with balancing our perception, for working with the times when we're really drowning in the suffering, when we're really drowning in the pain. And what I found interesting is that through the practice of metta, I found the technique that he offers to be what naturally happens in my day-to-day life as a result of cultivating the intention of metta. So what he suggests is he says, you know, most of us ask what is wrong. We forget to ask what is right. And so he offers the suggestion, I'll read from what he says. He's talking about during the war in Vietnam and working with uh, the young people and students who made up what was called the School for Social Work, who worked in villages trying to ease the life of people and trying to bring reconciliation between the two sides in the war which means that everybody hates you and nobody trusts you because you're not taking sides. And a lot of their friends and workers were killed. It says, during the war, we were so busy helping the wounded that we sometimes forgot to smell the flowers. Night has a very pleasant smell, especially in the country. But we would forget to pay attention to the smells of mint, coriander, Time and sage. 
I would mention these herbs to the social workers and peace workers so they would be in touch with them. It might sound like a little thing, but the idea behind it is that in times of difficulty, we can consciously expand our field of awareness and notice that even in the most difficult situation, there can be seeds of happiness, seeds of joy, or just noticing the mint or noticing the beauty of the countryside even when your heart feels weighed down. What happens with the loving kindness is that this begins to happen naturally without consciously thinking of it. And I know this is not only my experience because quite a few people have commented to me that in small ways when they left a metta retreat, in much more subtle ways than they expected, they found the metta would come in to counterbalance what could have been an overwhelmingly difficult experience. In more subtle ways than we might expect. You might have come in thinking, well, when you leave, you're just going to be overbrimming with love for yourself and all beings and spend your life floating on this cloud of happiness and love. You might have sometimes like that, and that's nice. But what I found is in a much quieter way that I'll notice some difficulty. In fact, the metta seems to highlight in some ways states of aversion, states of fear. But it also allows them without a difficulty. And immediately there's a counterbalancing response. So for example, I noticed at one period when I was doing intensive metta, I began to notice just how much fear was underlying my response of aversion. And when I first noticed this was, it's always little things on a retreat that you know shouldn't be eliciting the response they are, so it makes you really say, what's going on here? And it was during a time when there were two lunches, one at 12 and one at 12.30, And that halfway through the course, they changed the times. So what? My mind went into this state of total aversion. And what's interesting was I wasn't really into food. I wasn't particularly hungry. It wasn't like, you know, I I didn't want to have to wait the extra half hour. I really didn't care. And I saw my mind going into this state of aversion, and as I kept... As I was doing metta, it just allowed the aversion. Oh, that's okay, aversion. May you be happy, Carol. And under it (laughs) began to surface a sense of fear, turned into panic. And I was sitting there going, what is going on? What is this panic about? And it it was just tuning into the panic, this little blip of fear that comes up in the conditioning of my mind when anything new comes into the range of experience. It was really quite fascinating. So as I kept on watching the thoughts, there was panic. Oh, I have this little table I always sit at, and the same people sit there, and now different people will be sitting. Or I might not even get to sit at that table. And the next time, who cares? I don't even care if I eat lunch. And then it would start up again. Oh, no, what if, what if? And it was just the fear of any change, of anything new. Now, without the metta, I usually wouldn't see that fear. 
and it would just move right into aversion and stay there until something major comes to blast it out. With the metta, it just let me see. It highlighted the fear much more than it normally would have. And, of course, as soon as I sat down at the lunch table, because the metta was there, there was a sense of, oh, this is really nice. These people are quite lovely. This is actually even more pleasant than it was before. And it was gone. What I've noticed is that that same quality of highlighting the fear and the aversion and the almost immediate counterbalancing of seeing something really lovely or appreciating something else about the situation has come up more and more and more in my daily life. And it's not conscious. It's not like I say, oh, I should find something to balance the fear. But the the cultivation over time of the intention of loving kindness to oneself and to other beings has the effect of really broadening experience and lending a balance to the fear, to the aversion. Not blinding us to it, not pretending that the difficulty isn't there, but simply seeing, oh, there's this fear and there's also some really nice aspects to this situation. So I'll see it now if I'm in the middle of something and the phone rings. There's this little quick, oh, fear. And then there's a version, I don't want to talk on the phone. And then I pick up the phone and hear someone's voice and feel this surge of loving kindness. How nice to talk to this person. So it doesn't catch hold the fear and the aversion. And my experience of life is so much broader and not unbalanced, and not unbalanced in a let's pretend everything's wonderful kind of a way. Also see quite clearly that this sense of aversion to difficulty or fear comes so much from a sense of separation, a sense of limitation, a sense of fear that I need or want certain things to make myself complete, to make life pleasant, a fear that that might get taken away, a fear that somebody else might have more and then the mind starts comparing and begins to suffer a sense of of emptiness and neediness that it didn't even have before it saw that somebody else had more. All this is coming from not understanding things as they are. The whole sense of seeing ourselves as a separate, limited being, needing something, anything from outside to be fulfilled, is the core delusion of our existence. And how metta is so powerful is that without our even having to have any intellectual understanding of it, as we continue to cultivate the loving kindness just to ourselves, it begins to spread to other beings. True metta does not discriminate. When you're experiencing a moment of metta, There is not with it that sense of, well, only me, but not somebody else. 
In fact, in that moment, you're not really making any discriminations at all. It is fearless metta. In fact, the Buddha taught it as the antidote to fear. It's boundaryless, and at its most pure and powerful moments, it's also centerless. The experience of metta is not referring back to me having this experience, this feeling, and sending it to you. You know, I mean, that's the way we have to think about it when we begin practicing, of course. But the actual power of it is that it leads us into a real visceral experiencing of the boundaryless interconnection of all of us, of the sense of no separation. And from that space, from that knowing of non-separation, there is no fear. There is no neediness. There is no need for something outside to fill us up because we're touching the essential purity and completeness of who we are. And metta is an avenue into this understanding. It's really quite wonderful. And so again, that leads in, that leads me into talking about the way that working and practicing loving kindness can highlight or deepen our understanding of attachment and the ultimate suffering and confusion that comes about from attachment. Again, attachment is that sense of wanting or needing something outside of us, whether it's a sense experience, another person, a particular experience in life, another job, a particular emotion, whatever. But needing or wanting some particular passing experience to fill us up, to make us happy. And as we've just seen, that isn't true happiness, but it's so hard for us to trust that. We're so used to looking outside and the sense of our, uh, the idea that we are somehow intrinsically incomplete, intrinsically lacking, and the tendency to keep looking somewhere else for the answer. This is the deep suffering that comes from attachment. And it's so strong in our culture. I read in the newspaper, and it must have been a few months ago, about an Oprah Winfrey show. And she had done a show based on the movie Sleepless in Seattle, I guess which the premise was about uh, a radio talk show and a couple on, on opposite coasts who met through hearing about this lonely widower on the radio talk show. So anyway, the newspaper said Oprah Winfrey had a show. She called it a Sleepless in Seattle show. And she had, I think it was five, you know, relatively young middle-aged widowers men who had children and whose wives had died and who were clearly good relationship material. (laughs) So I was set up. What can we say? (laughs) And so I didn't see the show, but I guess, you know, she interviewed them all and really tried to put them in a good light. And then she said, I guess kind of casually, well, if any of you out there are interested, you know, send in letters. Two weeks later, this is what the article said, she came on the show 
with like a bulldozer, she had gotten 60,000 letters <laughs> from people who wanted to meet these guys. <laughs> Whoa. In fact, one guy alone, I don't know what made him so special, got 40,000. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's funny, but it's really not. Because I just felt like, oh, that's, it's so sad in a way. I mean, maybe somebody will meet. I don't know how he picked who to go out with out of 40,000 people. But... How much really we're yearning for, sure, for intimacy and companionship and a relationship in life, and that's all very positive. I mean, I'm not saying that's not. But somehow the depth of the inner yearning for real love, for a sense of our completeness, for real happiness in life, and how deep the sense is that we need it from somebody else or from something else, but really from somebody else, is much more powerful and more subtle. And it's hard to trust when we begin to be able to connect with and actually cultivate and experience deeply a love, pure love, that is not dependent on anybody or anything else. It doesn't fit you know, what we've unconsciously perhaps grown up believing. And so you can see how, maybe not, but how... (laughs) 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 I want to say two things. In, In practicing with metta, getting more and more deeply familiar with that experience of pure love that has no conditions on it, that wants nothing back, and experiencing how happy, how freeing that quality of love is, it began for me to highlight more and more the difference between that love and the nature of attachment and the kind of happiness that I thought was coming from attachment. And if you think of it as attachment in the really gross sense, without first moving to the near enemy where the attachment and the love are sort of mingled and it's more confusing, but first just tuning into what is attachment, what is desire or craving in a gross way, it's easier to see the ultimately unsatisfying nature of it or it's easier to see. We can see it in a moment and then forget it the next moment. But attachment or desire being this this wanting of something, desire, and it grows so strong that we get really holding on to it, attached, grasping, in a way that gives us a kind of a tunnel vision. So to make a very simplistic example, you're sitting, you're walking, it's very peaceful, you're very present, sense of happiness or love or just simply peace and suddenly the thought of pizza comes up or potato chips or chocolate cake or whatever jelly beans I don't care what it is whatever it is for you 
And it comes up and there's some desire. That would be really nice. I wonder if there's pizza for lunch. And it gets stronger. There's a real, I really want pizza for lunch. What happened in that moment to the sense of peace, to the sense of appreciation for the environment, for your state? It's sort of like Michelle said yesterday, the happiest moment in her life, and the thought comes up, what's for tea? And that happy moment's gone. But we tend not to recognize that and continue to focus on the object, the thing that we're wanting, pizza. And if pizza isn't for lunch, do we appreciate what is for lunch? Not so well. Everything pales in comparison. And depending on how bad and how strong the attachment grows, you might find yourself on a pizza mission into town. I, it happens. I've on more, many occasions met yogis in the supermarket and in the town. I don't suggest it. It gives a real kind of tunnel vision. All we see or look for is what we want. Other things we're not able to appreciate. There's a saying that when a pickpocket meets a saint, he only sees the saint's pockets. We focus on what we want. And we're not happy because the wanting is suffering. It's uncomfortable until we get that. So say we get pizza for lunch and, ah, peace. Again, we tend not to recognize the peace isn't the pizza. The peace is the absence of that craving, of that attachment. It's gone. It's like, ah. And if you just watched it, wanting, 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 and at some point it faded away, that same peace would be here. But instead we think, oh, if one piece of pizza made me this happy, two pieces would make me even more happy. You know, and we'll have three or four, and then somehow it didn't work. Somehow we feel worse, but we still don't get it, and instead we say, well, okay, maybe something else. And we keep focusing on the thing that we want and not noticing that it's the process of looking to something outside of ourselves for happiness, something that's always changing. It's that process that's bringing the suffering. And on a, on a slightly more subtle level, sometimes we can even confuse the process of the longing itself, can find that kind of pleasurable. It's a little strange, but I was, I was watching the movie Shadowlands, and there was one point where um, the character playing C.S. Lewis, who was t- teaching literature to his class, And I just remember one section where he was talking about the code of chivalric love during the Middle Ages. And he said something to the effect that the ideal of this chivalric love is that the knight would love a woman who could never be obtainable, someone he could never have a relationship with, because that longing that could never be satisfied was the most exquisite happiness. I was just cringing, I thought. (laughs) A life of misery, and they think it's the most exquisite happiness. It's so interesting. It's so interesting. Somewhere in there, some of that conditioning, I can see it still in there in myself, somehow 
confusing, you know, when you're just falling in love with somebody, but you don't really know if it's going to happen or not. And if you really look, I experienced that as torture. But somehow the mind puts it into, wow, love, it's so wonderful. You know, you're mooning around, you can't eat, you're miserable, you want the phone to ring, oh, isn't it wonderful, love? It's very strange. (laughs) We're we're so inculcated to not quite see what's going on, even in such a gross, simple attachment as pizza or a new car. Then moving into how confused the messages are when we start to think of romantic love. When we begin to work in the metta or when it becomes concerned with someone that we do truly love, whether it's someone that you're romantically involved with or a very dear friend, you can see, if you haven't already begun to explore that, how easily, without real attention, without real grounding in metta, how easily we can get confused and think that what we might be calling real love. We think it's real love without looking and seeing that it can so easily slide into a subtle mode of longing or attachment or need. And at the same time, I found because the two, metta and real caring for someone, but with certain conditions on it, because they can so easily move back and forth, I found that I could learn a tremendous amount about the quality of pure love with someone I'm in a relationship with and the nature of attachment. But I do want to say it, it takes getting first really grounded in recognizing, in trusting, in knowing the feel of pure metta. And that's the reason that in giving the instructions, in the way that we go through the people, as Michelle was saying, I think it was this morning, it's traditionally taught that for quite some time you don't use as one of the categories some someone of a sex to which you would be attracted, someone that you would be romantically or very close to because they're so easily confused and we're not really so clear about what pure true love is. But as we spend time and more and more and more get really grounded in and recognizing the qualities of metta and the whole range from very subtle to really strong, we begin to tell the difference. And so I found it fascinating first to see, without choosing a partner, but just a dear friend, how easily and subtly what was really pure metta would begin to shade into affection with attachment. I'd be sending to the friend, sending to the friend, just feeling happiness and closeness and wishing well for the friend, wishing well. Wouldn't it be nice to see each other more? And pretty soon, wouldn't it be nice? And just this slight change of wanting something back. And at first not noticing the moment of change, but suddenly realizing that the feeling was not this outflowing, happy, spacious movement of energy from the heart, but a little sort of 
grabbing, like from a lower chakra, just a little wanting of something. A little bit of condition, a little bit of fear, a little bit of need. And then I began to notice, as soon as that happened, and it was still quite subtle, it wasn't, you wouldn't call it suffering by any means, it still was sort of masquerading as metta. That the little thoughts, the little discursive thoughts that were coming, which didn't seem to have anything to do with a dear friend or myself, but I noticed that the discursive thoughts suddenly had a lot to do with attachment to this or that. I think of my house and wouldn't it be nice to get this and I wonder if that's happening and I wonder what's happening with my family and I wonder what's for lunch. And just that attachment had begun to come up in the experience, almost as if as the metta shaded into attachment, it lifted attachment. It makes it more it made it more easy for it to come into my experience. And so once I noticed that, it became really fascinating to explore, not to be afraid of attachment, but to really have a clarity and a willingness to recognize attachment and metta and to explore the difference. It's really, I learned a lot about it. And so just towards the end of a long period, I very, very lightly and easily would from time to time begin to include my partner as one of the categories, just to see what would happen. And as you know how it is when you're sending to a person you know, you get a sense of that person and send it. And then different situations that I've been in with a person would come up, maybe a different, a certain conversation we'd had, or a certain image would come up, or a certain situation we'd been in. And I really began to see again how different it could be if my speech and actions came from loving kindness or that subtle shading again into thinking I was wishing well, thinking I was really wanting the best for the person, but there's this little, little shading of attachment of, but you should act in a certain way. But I want the best for you, and that means that you will then do X, Y, and Z for me or even more subtle than that. And coming out of retreat, really notice that actions that on, on speech that on the surface might seem very loving, very caring for the person, and I really I had a lot of really noticing the difference. The same speech or the similar action, when it came from seeming caring, but there was still the little unspoken condition of, but what about me, somehow, in there. The response would be one of resistance or some kind of resentment. And before really tuning into the metta, my reaction would be puzzled because I would think I was just acting out of love. But it feels different. And then the same speech or action coming from true metta It's just this unbounded moving outward of the energy, truly wishing that person well, even if it means you never see him again, that they're doing whatever they need to be happy and absolutely no conditions attached. It's so different. And the response that comes back is so different. It's amazing. And all of this might be going on on a quite subconscious level. The other person might not even consciously realize that's what's happening. 
But it's been very powerful to explore the difference. And as we get more grounded in the real open-hearted, completely unselfish quality of metta, even when you're sending it to yourself, the quality of metta is unselfish, unself-centered. As we get grounded in that, it becomes easier to notice when we're sliding into attachment. And we really can see that the, the joy, the happiness, the love that arises with the practice of metta is so much more profound, so much more, it's just so much happier, it's so much richer than can come from the, what we call love that's mixed with attachment. It's just, it's just like two different worlds. And so as Thich Nhat Han likes to say that uh, practicing Buddhism is a clever way to enjoy life. He says, happiness is available. Please help yourself. That's really what we're trying to cultivate here with a loving kindness, a way where happiness and peace is always available, no matter what the external or internal conditions It's not dependent on needing anything to fill us up. That we can be, we are happiness and peace itself if we will only trust that enough and commit ourselves to cultivating it and allowing it to flourish whenever it might happen to arise by itself. So could we sit for a moment? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.